This is Car Expert. It just never made sense to me that people would walk into a Ford showroom, buy a Ranger, then go across the road and buy a RAV4 or a CX-5 when they had a perfectly good alternative within the Ford showroom. It's got a wide view camera. Who cares about windscreens? On the track, it still felt really light on its feet, had a really quick front end, and at no point did I go, oh, this just feels like a big lurching battery car. Welcoming this week, Tony Crawford. Hello. Maddie, how are you? Good new mic at all. I know. <laughs> Can't recognise you. I'm feeling um, very. Uh, I'm feeling very um, together, if you like, good. without the issues that we normally have. Yes, you look together. Um, hello, yeah. James Wong. As Lionel Richie once said, "Hello." <laughs> Is it me you're looking for? Yeah. Um, now uh, you're off gallivanting again this weekend with uh, Drive Against De- Depression, Joe. Yes. So um, for those who don't know, I am one of the ambassadors for Drive Against Depression, which is a wonderful charity that I've been involved with for quite a number of years now. Um, And basically, we get together with um, groups of people, whether you're a regular or someone that hasn't heard of us before. We we organize drive days, we have lunch together. And basically, the the whole um, concept is bringing people together and talking about mental health um, through a shared love of motoring. So, you know, it all started with a conversation that was had on a drive um and joe joe could i gotta yes. ask you is, is my mate is my mate adam davis still involved Yes, he is. And so for those who aren't familiar with Adam Davis, he's a former journalist and a good friend of a lot of ours. Um, and he has been in the industry for quite a while and he currently works in PR, um, currently at Mitsubishi, previously at Mazda and BMW, where he's mm. done some really great work. Um, so yeah, our next event is actually this coming Sunday. Um, and we're doing that in partnership with um, the Berwick Ford dealership. So a, a gentleman named Paul who works there has been really involved for a number of years and has been um, very instrumental in getting the dealership to be involved in various ways. And so every year, one of the drives that we do, in this case, it's an autumn one. Um, Basically, it's a Berwick Ford day. So um, on Sunday, we'll be starting at their dealership, which is in southeast Melbourne or just out of southeast Melbourne. And then we'll be driving down to Inverloch. It's a really great drive that we've done before. um, And we'll be having lunch at the Inlet Hotel. Um, If anyone is interested um, and you're listening, we're still taking registrations at the time of recording. So hopefully it doesn't close between now and when you actually listen to it um and the it's on the dri- search drive against depression on the website and then head to their events page um we can even leave a link in the written but the written may have gone live by the time the event happens such a good cause yeah it's a it's a really great um really great cause so i may also have a surprise car there um this weekend Ooh, which wow. um, fans of the brand might enjoy so i will mm. see people there interesting <laughs> interesting um, now, Croft, I know you've been biting at the bit to talk about your experience driving <sighs> some very special Jaguars in Spain a number of weeks ago. Yeah, look, this was super special. Um, we drove, by the way, the last of the F-types. So the F-type model is um, is going into it's finishing. It's, it's dead. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> and uh, we were driving a um, both V8s, supercharged V8s, the uh, convertible. Um, and the um, the the F type, uh, I guess, coupe with a satin or Santorini satin black. It was absolutely amazing. Now we drove from the Mediterranean Sidges, which is a fantastic little village in uh, about south of Barcelona, a half an hour, 
um, with brilliant seafood at rock-bottom prices, can I just say. Um, and I love my food as much as my cars. Um, and then we drove across Spain um, into the ski fields, which were absolute, absolutely populated by lots of skiers, um, and the photography, as you can imagine, is great. The reviews on carexpert.com.au uh, already, you can see some of the pics. Someone called me Bernie Eccleston. Uh, they were surprised to see Bernie Eccleston in the car uh, in a Jag, which I thought was quite hilarious. Um, <laughs> now I can't unsee it. Yeah, and, uh, you'll have to go online and see that uh, on the site. Um, uh, and then we finished in um, another magnificent um, town in the north of Spain called San Sebastian, which is on the coast and has a surfing beach. So that was of particular interest to me. But fabulous Parisian architecture in uh, San Sebastian as well. It's probably one of the most expensive cities in Spain. I went to a great little restaurant that hung over a cliff there in the cars and then we wrapped up and then uh, we flew out of Bilbao. If you haven't heard of Bilbao, it's where the second Guggenheim Museum is and a giant spider sits outside it. Um, a a, a, um, sculpture yeah it's brilliant Um, so yeah it was the last of the F-types and it was a a little bit wet up on the top but my god did the sound that these cars make and I posted a lot of uh, Insta both on Expert and my own and you can hear the noise these things make Um, it really is one of the best V8 sounds of all time Mm. and I I suspect um, J-Wo and Mandy that these cars will end up collectibles Um, the Giolo green that this was in with a tan leather and you can see that on the side in the review was spectacular Mm. and and I and you know you come away thinking which would you buy Um, the the more you know the quicker coupe um, in this satin black or would you go and I think you'd almost have to go the convertible it was just Mm. so magnificent and, um, yeah, there you have it, the last of the F-Type and as Jaguar heads towards an all-electric future. So uh, all very exciting to see what um, – and they reckon, um, you know, uh, a little birdie told me that um, what you what, – what Jaguar will come out with in the next few years – will blow your mind. So, like, you know, let's let's hope that brand really kicks off with an EV future and produces some incredible designs as they've always produced. I mean, people were telling us on the way, uh, it was a three-day trip, by the way, um, that, you know, they, they thought they were better looking than the Aston Martin equivalent. So th- there's you have the love with Jaguar. And I think you can all see if you, if you go on and have a look at those pics, you can see what I mean. This is a most... One of the best looking cars ever made, and I and uh, you know, of course, Ian Callum designed this this vehicle, who's no longer uh, at Jaguar, and he's now designing his own cars at his own studio. So um, he's an iconic designer and designed uh, the Vantage and all these brilliant cars in the past. And mm. yeah, that was it. I'm keen to hear your thoughts, J-Wo, because all English and green and tan. I know it's your, like, dream <laughs> I spec. Know. Yeah, well, um, we actually, one of my first reviews at Car Expert was the um, F-Type R, um, which was mm-hmm. when they they went from calling it an SVR and put the SVR stuff under a more normal-looking one. So mm-hmm. that was one of my first experiences driving a 5-litre supercharged V8 from Jag, and that was I, – I probably can't say the things that I want to say <laughs> on, on like a, P, a G or PG-rated podcast, but it made me feel <laughs> some things. Um, and then not long later, we actually had another F-Type coupe come through the Melbourne garage, but it was actually when they got rid of the supercharged sixes in the four-cylinder and then – 
had the base rear-wheel drive um, V8, which I believe is similar to the spec that, Croft, you, you were describing yes. for that um, convertible. In the convertible, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and for me, that one was probably even better because it's got that rear drive balance and it's also like a hundred grand cheaper and it makes all the same sounds in Australia. You're never going to have to go 300 Ks an hour. So you don't have to worry about how fast you're going to get there. And um, yeah, so I, I personally think a a rear wheel drive that the cheaper one's fine in a nice spec because it looks just like the other one anyway. And, and that, um, that sec, that cheaper, well, the more affordable one that we had was actually British racing green over a tan interior. And so I was like, I had to steal it off Scott for a couple of nights because I was like, nah, this is my car. Like this is exactly how I would spec it. And I did it all for an Instagram post and it got me lots of likes. So we all won. We all won. (laughs) Yeah. um, Uh, I mean, it's just you salivate over that color combination. It's just. And the British racing green is good and I love that. But this Jolo green Mm. was equally spectacular in a smoky Mm. kind of way. Yeah. Um, And the tan leather, I mean, the. Jaguar has always done leather and interiors so well and, you know, nothing's – they're not slowing down in that department and, of course, that – I don't know what they'll come up with with interior fabrics with the EVs, but uh, maybe we'll see the end of leather or man-made leather. I don't know. I, to piggyback off your comments about their future, I would really love to see Jaguar try and revive its historic nameplates but with electric electric drivetrains because mm. I think that Jaguar has a real opportunity to make EVs beautiful. Um, because at the moment I don't feel like a lot of brands are succeeding in making EVs classically beautiful Um, I think it started with maybe the Tesla Model S but it took a couple of refinements to make it quite a good looking car and you've got the Porsche Taycan and there's a couple of others scattered here and there but Mm. I think when you look at Jaguar's current range with the exception of the E-Pace because for some reason I just do not gel with the um, E-Pace everything else that they have in their current um, lineup looks tits so if they have just electric versions that are refinements of that with, you know, more streamlined bodies and whatever in the next generation. I think Jag has a real opportunity there. And, you know, as with the hopes and dreams of, of the British public on their back in terms of, you know, how big of an automotive powerhouse Jaguar is for that country, I think oh. they've got uh, their work cut out for them, but they can definitely do it. Although I do think the I-Pace was ahead of its time. I mean, it came Absolutely. out years and years ago and it was – it still actually looks contemporary EV car. So um, I, I give them credit for that. They were just ahead of their time and 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 they produced something like that. They'd had a pretty good range back in the day. So, look, you're right. Um, from what I'm told, the cars are going to blow people's minds. So I really hope they deliver on that and, and, and knowing, you know, they're a relatively small company, even though they're owned by a large company. Um, mm. And, you know, people with less tend to do more. Um, and I, I'm hoping Jaguar can pull um, some really good uh, bows in that, uh, you know, and really produce some fantastic looking stuff. As Jaguar says, to make EVs beautiful, um, we need that. The world make needs that. EVs beautiful again. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, do go and check out uh, Croft's uh, review of the F Type uh, and just have just drool over those photos. They're just incredible. Uh, you can and have a look F- at Bernie Eccleston. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about this week's car news, we welcome Jade Credentino. Hello, Jade. Hello, Mandy. How are you? 
Very good, thank you. I'm keen to find out more about this Polestar 4 debuting without a rear windscreen. I'm like, is this an April Fool's Day joke? Or It has come out of the Shanghai Motor Show along with plenty of other concepts and vehicles. Polestar revealed its Polestar 4. Now, the 4 is slightly smaller than the 3, just to add a little bit more confusion, and measures around the size of a Porsche Macan. Now, one design feature, like you just mentioned, that we weren't expecting was the lack of a rear windscreen. Uh, Drivers will use a roof-mounted camera that will offer a real-time feed to a screen inside the cabin. It will be based on the SEA architecture that has been rolled out uh, to the brands under the Geely umbrella. Now, there are two options for the vehicle. The range starts with a long-range single motor with 200 kilowatts of power and 343 newton metres of torque, and the motor is mounted on the rear axle with a 94-kilowatt-hour lithium-ion battery pack and claims to have a 600-kilometre reach range. Rather, the flagship is a long-range dual motor with combined outputs of 400 kilowatts and 686 newton meters of torque, and has a range of 560 kilometers with a zero to 100 kilometer sprint, only taking a claimed 3.8 seconds. Now, I found this really weird and I want to know what you guys think. Um, The rear-wheel drive can tow um, 1,500 kilograms and the dual motor can tow 2,000 kilograms without a rear windscreen. Would you guys dare to tow on this car? Yes, yes, yes. I don't care. It hasn't got a rear windscreen. It's got a wide-view camera. Who cares about windscreens? It looks sensational, by the way. Um, just quietly. It it, I love it. And um, honestly, um, towing, looking through a rear windscreen is not really ideal anyway because uh, you can't see all four corners. You can with a wide view camera. And we notice that, you know, a lot of cars now can switch their rear view mirror between an actual view and a and a camera view. And the camera view is always wider. You get a much better perspective on vision. Um, it just takes a little bit of getting used to, but they've really advanced this technology in the last couple of years. And now it is exceptional. Hyundai's uh, inboard digital mirrors are quite exceptional. In fact, I would rather use them than the actual view. Uh, so I don't think it's an issue. It's just new technology and people have got to get used to it. And, and you know, it's like a new car comes out and we all, oh, gee, that M2, not sure about that. And, of course, it grows on you in six months and you get used to the look. In this case, it's getting used to technology. And, um There ain't no turning back, folks. Um, You need to get on board. Literally. (laughs) What about you, Jay? Uh, I I don't know. I I am still undecided. I'm not sure how much I love the the closed rear um, hatch thing. I still think that there needs to be you know, I love technology as much as anybody and it's really great to see someone like Croft who typically his demographic would be very closed off to this kind of tech and this kind of design. Um, but at the same time, you have to still have, I feel, some fail safes built in and the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, just 
you know, knock on wood, the rear camera stops working. You've got absolutely no, no rearward vision with the, with the exception of the side mirrors and being able to like look directly behind you and things like that. You know, the the whole point of reversing cameras, I remember at the beginning was so people stop rolling over their kids in the driveway, as, as morbid as that sounds. Like that mm. was one of the key things. Now you've got no real way of seeing out the back depending on where they place it. So depending on whether it's a mirror, like a digital mirror, like what Crawford was describing before or whether it's like a proper like display out on on the central infotainment screen um it'll be interesting to see how polestar's gotten around removing the rear glass um to sort of give an equivalent or better um level of visibility at the rear in terms of the actual design i think it looks kind of cool it sort of makes me think of what the polestar 2 would evolve to next um even though that car is still relatively current um i really like the front and i think i love the wheel designs i think i personally prefer the polestar three um just for its more conventional and um more organic shape um i'm still not really a hundred percent behind suv coupe designs um i was actually having a discussion about this with some friends in a group chat this morning and my my stern word to all of them was unless it looks like an audi q8 i don't want it (laughs) (laughs) i tend to agree (laughs) um now this is actually going to be Sorry, but don't forget, guys, um, there's a a ton of sports cars out there that you cannot see out the back window. Um, So we're fine with those. um, And I know this is uh, an SUV of sorts. But um, look, you know, KNGT, I mean, there's a lot of uh, SUVs that have very, very raked rear glass and it's very, very difficult to see. In fact, some normal SUVs now have a very small rear glass mm. that is very difficult to see much at all and you've got to use your mirrors and your rear view mirror. Um, yeah, I, I, I think JWO will, will finally warm to this um, over time. I thought it would have been around the other way. Joe would be all for it and Crawford would be all against it. I love this. Um, now, this car is uh, actually quite polarising as well. Uh, the Chinese has released a six-wheeler ute concept, Jade. Yes. So, uh, again, at the Shanghai Motor Show, um, GWM revealed its cyber pickup concept. Now, the ute is a plug-in hybrid adaptation to the Canon uh, that offers 50 kilometers of range. Now, the 6x6 ute is capable of towing a lot more than the Polestar 4, so you've got (laughs) 3.5 tonnes with the potential to extend it to a whopping 6 tonnes. Now, GWM is working on a 4x4 version of the cyber pickup concept um, with both models being confirmed for production. The 6x6 will go under consideration for Australia with a spokesperson confirming it has definitely caught their eye. What do you guys think? It obviously has a much larger windscreen, a a rear windscreen. Uh, What do you guys think? (laughs) Go on, Croft. Why do you need it? I know, I was thinking the same. Why do you need a six-wheel ute in Sydney or Melbourne or even Brisbane? I mean, honestly, I mean, it looks pretty cool and, you know, the front looks like a bit of a ranger slash, I mean, it looks like every other ute. At the front end, um, very Silverado-ish, actually, mm. uh, I get from that front end. Um, uh, look, I, I suppose the towing factor, but there are plenty of utes that can tow three and a half ton that don't have six wheels. So um, I'm not sure about this. I think it would probably work in the States better than it would here. 
Yeah, I tend to agree. I think um, I, I've been to the Shanghai Motor Show before um, in a previous job, and the, the scale of things that they they do over there is mind-boggling. And obviously, they have a very different set of road rules and regulations and that kind of thing compared to here. And like Croft said, I just don't know if something that large and that bold really needs to be like. <laughs> Obviously, some idiot's going to buy something like that. I know that when the when Mercedes had the six by six G wagon, everyone wanted it, but they never brought it here. And you know, there are parts of uh, driving from Sydney to um, the northern beaches, for example, when you go through some of those really tight winding roads. I can just imagine these things collecting quite a few um, smaller cars <laughs> on, on a bend <laughs> or something like that. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Like, I just wonder when you know the Chinese brands have really started to pick up lately and. As a result, some of their higher-end products are really bumping up in price. So, looking at this with a plug-in hybrid drivetrain, you're probably looking at like Ford F one fifty money once they release the the locally um, converted version. Same with like Silverado and Ram fifteen hundred. You know, is that are people still going to want to cross shop uh, a fairly you know new Chinese brand with? unproven tech against something like that you know the f-150 is the most popular truck in the u.s they sell one every three seconds they're saying to branch them out across the world and you know that's got the extra um towing capacity and capability compared to something like a ranger i just wonder whether you know the the whole a lot of the chinese market particularly at the higher end is all about excess because it's sort of in the culture to want to be showy and have the coolest thing and be a little bit stand out a little bit and i just don't know whether something like this in particular really makes sense here it does have a 50k all electric range which would be fine uh to commute probably to someone's work site and all that. So in that regard, it could be conceived as a, a clean uh, green, if you like, uh, ute, even For though sure. it has six wheels. But there are other know. options coming to the market with hybrid and plug-in hybrid soon. Like um, Ford's meant yeah. to be giving the Ranger uh, a plug-in hybrid drivetrain in the next year or so. And, you know, the next Mitsubishi Triton potentially has an all-electric version. We've got LDV with the ET60, which is very compromised, um, mm. to put it lightly. So it's just I don't know. It's it's interesting, and and, and you're right. There are, there is an opportunity there. I think a four by four version probably makes more sense because you can sort of mm. have it positioned between something like a high spec Ranger and uh, and an F one fifty or the equivalence of both, but, and then sort of ha have a plug in version there. But I don't know. The the thing is, um, guys, that Ram is selling as many vehicles as they can convert right now, and even the TRX is that they can't bring enough into those things and they're $200,000 and they're literal, um, they're monsters. They they really are uh, the car version of a dinosaur, if you like, and, <laughs> and, and they're selling so many. I think um, Ram is earmarked to sell up to 10,000 utes in 24. Um, that is quite a staggering amount. I think they're doing about six or seven now. Uh, but it, it's only capped by the supply situation. So, um, you know, look, I, I guess I've got to say good on, good on uh, Canon uh, for, for bringing stuff that we would not normally see. And if they're considering it for Australia, well, then 
you know, we're a lucky country in that regard because, as we all know, we get so many brands and opportunities that even the US don't get in some cases. The US, uh, I was listening to a podcast this morning. Uh, the guy that I was listening, and this is a very big podcast, by the way, um, they didn't know that MG still existed. Um, you know, wow. like that's that, that, yeah, it was absolutely mind blowing. I wanted to literally pick up a phone to this guy who I do know and say, guys, MG have been pumping out cars for years at the moment. Like, <laughs> yeah, anyway. Oh, boy. Um, Well, yeah, that certainly is going to be a niche car and and so will um, the new luxurious people mover from Lexus, Jade. I think it might need more grill, though. Yeah, so Lexus has announced that the second generation Lexus LM will come to Australia. Now, we won't know local pricing specifications or anything closer to the launch date. However, we can expect that to be in the next 12 months. I found this really interesting. It measures shorter but taller than a Kia Carnival, but it's also smaller than a Grambia. So I think it will have a specific kind of place in that, I guess, luxury segment. It is that a cliff you could fall off at the front? (laughs) 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 It is. Yeah, it's a very interesting take. There, there are us. differences between the first generation and the second uh yeah and design is just one thing uh another difference is that the two row four seat version uh ditches the 3.5 liter v6 uh, from the previous generation and replaces it with a 2.4 liter turbocharged hybrid engine which is similar to the rx 500 h f sport performance um and the three rows which can come in either a six or seven seat configuration um will have a 2.5 liter four-cylinder hybrid powertrain now a couple of really cool design features that i quite enjoyed was a 48 inch widescreen display in the four seat guys that separates the two rows um, with captain's chairs and retractable armchairs um, as well now the vehicle will be launched in over 60 countries uh, and locally its key rival is only the Mercedes-Benz V-Class. What do you guys think and do you think it will do well? Uh, I think it's mega, guys. I mean, it actually outdoes the iX, uh, the i7 in that regard, um, which is just extraordinary. And I can see this working for hotels, um, pickups, VIP pickups, uh, we often are very lucky in our job. We get picked up in luxury vehicles at airports and uh, whisked away to the hotels, which can be an hour away or if not more. And Some I think of us more sit- than others. I think to sit back here and, you know, watch a, you know, there'll be no doubt they'll have some pre-recorded stuff on the car that you're over there to drive or launch. And uh, But, yeah, it's... Surely this will work, right? And hmm. it is incredibly luxurious. But that cliff at the front, I'd be really scared that if I um, uh, leaned out or did something, I could roll off and fall off the cliff. Yeah, I, I agree. I think Lexus has been um, has been really smart to get this car to Australia. Um, when you I, not that they actually sell it officially here, but Toyota has the Alphard, which is a very popular grey import vehicle for Australia, and this is basically Lexus's version of that. So, you know, the kind of people that want 
there, there's still a market for people movers as the carnival has very clearly um, demonstrated over the last few years. Um, and there are a lot of families who perhaps just want the most spacious thing available or there are corporate or businesses that need something to shuttle clients around in. And the, the various options that are available here really build on what the Grandview offers. The Grandview is a little bit more mainstream, a bit more um, commercial in terms of how it um, is specced up and also the drivetrain. So here you've got a hot, the electrification aspect is a key selling point and there's not really any hybrid options on the market right now, even though Mercedes has the EQV, but that is quite expensive. Um, we're not sure how much this is going to cost, obviously, but if it starts under 100 grand, that's already quite an advantage. And then having the option of that cool four-seat interior, the guy actually sitting in the back seat of that car, I thought it was me for a second. He's got very similar hair. But um, <laughs> it's it's just really cool. And then to see it's got all the new, the new Lexus, infotainment, tech, all that kind of thing. It should drive fairly well. Um, it Being a Lexus, it should be one of the most refined and insulated people movers on the market. Um, and I'm sure that if they're – finally bringing it here, there has to be demand in a market for it. So they'll probably be targeting existing Alphard buyers and the like. You know, the biggest issue with these things, and um, particularly the Mercedes versions that I've been in, they ride terribly. Um, the bump, and it's actually quite, it almost makes you ill if you've got a long drive uh, from the airport to your destination. Um, I'm, I, I noticed that it's got adaptive variable suspension. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get a soft ride all the time necessarily. I would love to see one of these things riding on air suspension, um, particularly with the type of clientele that they're likely to pick up in, in the four-seat guys. Um, so let's just hope it rides better than some of the other um, giant people movers that I've been in because it's absolutely deplorable in some cases. Yeah, good points you make there, Croft. And uh, lastly, we've got some Ford news, good and bad news. So the Escape's going, but the Puma EV's coming, Jade. Yes, that's right. So Ford has decided to discontinue the Escape from its local lineup. The Escape has been in Australia for 20 years and Ford will take both its petrol and plug-in hybrid models away from Australia. Now, the decision will leave Ford without a car in the medium SUV segment, which includes the Toyota RAV4 and Mazda CX-5. Ford hasn't provided a full explanation, but has confirmed that supply was partly to blame. Now, out of the Escape and in with the Puma EV, Ford has announced that its next EV to join the lineup um, after the announcement of the Mac-E will be the Puma EV. Ford Australia says the Puma is the final step to launching its five EVs in Australia by the end of 2024. The Puma EV will take on the BYD Auto 3 and MG ZS EV based on its size, but we're still waiting for Ford to release official pricing. We expect the Puma to receive an updated design and interior that will also be accompanied by the petrol model when it is revealed. What do you guys think? Um, well, this was fairly big news, obviously, and I know every time we talk about Ford, I will be the first guy to say, I worked there for six months, so I went blah, blah, blah. Um, but when I heard that the escape was being discontinued, I was actually really disappointed because when I was um, when I was there, we were actually in the process of um, doing the pre-launch activities and understanding how important of a car that was um, for Ford in our market, and I just feel like it never got the chance it deserved. Uh, we... 
Uh, for those who don't know, we source our escape um, from the Spanish factory in Europe, not from America, even though that we have the same badge, whereas over there it's called the Cougar. And um, the way that they spec'd it was always a little bit funny to me here, given we got the American engine, but with all the European stuff in it. And the, the escape is actually quite electrified in Europe. They offer, you know, mild hybrid versions, hybrid versions, and plug-in hybrid versions. And it's um it's a very successful car. In in Europe, the last two years, the escape plug-in hybrid's actually been the most most popular plug-in hybrid in Europe, period, for the last wow. two years. So, you know, it's it's a proven vehicle. And I've always said that Ford's European products uh, are very underappreciated here, given Ford of Europe um, and their German design and engineering team, you know, they make good stuff. And so, you know, whether it's the the, the ST hot hatches or the Escape and Puma, they, they do really good stuff and they deserve to do better. In terms of what the Escape leaving means, I guess that, you know, they have really been selling enough for it to be that much of an impact but given how much of an opportunity was there to you know take people away from other brands you the, the medium suv segment is the largest segment in australia that's it's a it's a fact it's growing and ford has basically just cancelled out its own opportunity to compete in what is australia's largest segment despite having the most popular vehicle in market overall, it just never made sense to me that people would walk into a Ford showroom, buy a Ranger, then go across the road and buy a RAV4 or a CX-5 when they had a perfectly good alternative within the Ford showroom. So it's it's really sad to, to hear. And I know that supply has probably played a part in that it's because it's so popular in Europe. Maybe that's why. Um, I just hope that perhaps in future we'll see Ford really bargain hard with the Detroit head office and bring something like the Bronco Sport, um, which is effectively an escape wearing a, a Bronco disguise anyway um, so that we can, they at least have a slice of the market there and give an option to buyers that perhaps find the Puma too small and the Everest too large. Um, with regards to the Puma EV, that's a really exciting announcement and it's very unusual for Ford to make a product announcement like that so far out of its launch. We don't know when, it hasn't even been revealed yet. We don't know when it's coming here. We don't know what it's going to be priced at. We don't know what it's powered by. Um, but for them to make an announcement 12 to 18 months before release is is really, really unusual for, for Ford. And I think that if they can price it right and um you know position it in market as something like a i don't know like a fifty thousand dollar fifty five thousand dollar proposition with a more you know well-rounded sporty vibe which is something that the puma nameplate at the moment really represents it's one of the best driving com compact suvs on sale um i think it could be a really good opportunity for them in in line with the the midlife refresh to you know give it the latest tech and, and give it a really broad spectrum that it competes in now that the escape's gone. So you'll see, you know, base Pumas competing at the entry level and then if they bring the new, the mild hybrid drivetrains and then electric, then you've got a really electrified lineup that is in keeping with Ford's, you know, pitch as a, as a leader in, in powertrain technology and, and mobility. I, I think it's a shame too, uh, J-Wo. The Escape, I had a friend of mine recently bought a new Escape and he bought it because it had so much kit in it and we all know they've got great tech uh, with that Sync 4 at the moment. It, it works a treat, that stuff, and it's so reliable and robust. But it was also really powerful, like 180 plus kilowatts and, you know, he, he did the sums on all of the medium SUVs, bang for buck, he uh, this guy's really tight with his money, and um, he ended up buying an Escape for all those reasons of, of price, bang for buck, and tech. It's like Ford actually failed in marketing this thing properly in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, forget about supply. 
if you're only selling 430-odd vehicles, you're almost not doing the job that's required for that vehicle. Uh, given the success of the midsize SUV segment and the success of CX-5 and, uh, you know, Tucson and all the, all in the Kia equivalent, Sportage, um, you know, and they couldn't cut it, and yet it's a great car, as J-Wo says. It's a real shame to me, uh, but then again, I'm looking forward to the Mach-E. Um, I could see that parked alongside my dark horse that I've ordered. Uh, hopefully I can afford it when it drops. <laughs> we hope so too. That wraps up this week's car news. You can hit the news link at carexpert.com.au. Thank you, Jade. Thanks, Mandy. Always a pleasure. Hello, Paul Marrick. Hello, Mandy. How's it going? Very good. Uh, so you're basically the face of Car Expert. You do all Car Expert videos and TV appearances. But this latest TV appearance coming up is something a little bit unique. Yes, I'll be um, uh, building a deck. Um, it's part of a house extension and um, no, uh, I'll be on Better Homes and Gardens. We're doing uh, some segments uh, with them moving forward. I think for, for some of the people that may not be aware, um, uh, Seven West Media is an investor in our business and as a result of that, we're integrating into uh, not only their websites, you can see our content across uh, Seven West assets along with Australian community media. Um, we're now also trying to do a bit more with uh, their television segments as well. So we're actually doing a story on dual cab utes and uh, the type of utes you can buy out there. We're going to do a little bit of testing with a big old trailer as well. So it should be, should be a bit of fun, I reckon. Awesome stuff. Um, so aside from utes, any other ideas on what we can expect to see? Um, well, I don't want to give too much away. Um, <laughs> no, look, it's, it is going to be predominantly a segment on utes. Uh, we will be doing more segments moving forward. Um, contents of those will be slightly different. But I would be interested in hearing from anyone listening, what do you want to see? Are there any sort of particular um, segments or, or is there anything of interest you want us to cover on something like Better Homes and Gardens that doesn't involve me getting my hands dirty or splinters? <laughs> <laughs> so what's involved in, in doing a segment like this, Paul, sort of the, the behind the scenes and organisation? Uh, it's it's actually quite complicated and I didn't think it would be that complicated, but there's a whole bunch of planning that needs to go into it. Um, they have their team. Uh, obviously, they need to shoot in a particular fashion for their uh, show. And unlike YouTube where we can have videos that are whatever length, um, they are very restricted in terms of how long their segments need to be. So there is a bit involved in making sure that everything is time blocked and, and works out well for, for them. Um, they, they, their host also probably doesn't know a great deal about the youth, so it'll be up to me to explain um, what it is and, and how it all works in, in the easiest way possible. Um, so, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how it all uh, comes together. Yeah, look, I, I just think that um, we're always interested in being led by you. So if there is um, a segment you'd like to see us cover with Better Homes and Gardens or on any other seven programs, let us know because, um, yeah, it always sort of helps drive what we put together and, and how it all sort of comes, comes out at the end. Mm. Do we have a date for the first uh, segment? Good question, Mandy. <laughs> You're full of good questions <laughs> I don't have answers to. <laughs> I think it'll be in May sometime. So yeah, great. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll, 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 let our, um, we'll let our listeners know anyway when we know um, yes. the date's coming up. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, that was short and sweet, Paul. Um, always yes. good to have you on. Thank you. No worries. Thanks, guys. Uh, good luck with Tony. Oh, he's still on the call. Sorry. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, McLaren is moving into a new world with the Artura. So uh, how does a new plug-in hybrid supercar stack up in Australia? The man who managed to fit in one 
surprisingly, is Scott Colley. Hello, Scully. Hello, Mandy. I'm, I'm back after, yeah, successfully sitting in a supercar without my knees touching the back of the steering wheel or my head smashing the roof. It's a very good day. <laughs> uh, so, so where did you go and, and what were your first thoughts on it? So we went to the bend in Adelaide or just outside of Adelaide and we got to drive three pre-production cars, two of them left-hand drive, one of them right-hand drive. Um, McLaren pitched this to us as a, a private road drive, uh, partly because this car is about more than just driving on the track, but also because it couldn't actually road register two of the cars because they weren't Australian production cars. Um, so we experienced everything from e-mode, which is really uncanny in a half-million-dollar supercar, all the way up to full-on track mode on a, we'll call it a damp and drying track. I suppose the most common question you would be asked, how fast is it? <laughs> um, very is the answer. Uh, this car is quite an interesting one because it represents the start of, like you said before, a new dawn for McLaren. The old uh, sports series, super series, and even the ultimate series cars were built around a 3.8 litre V8 engine. It was a twin turbo and it debuted in the MP412C and then was gradually sort of improved upon over the life until we hit this point here where the Artura debuts a new twin turbo petrol V6 plug-in hybrid unit that altogether pumps out 500 kilowatts of power and 720 newton meters of torque. It's, uh, I have no doubt you'll agree, a lot of power for a car that weighs less than 1,500 kilos. Um, down the back straight at the bend, we were topping out at just over 260 k's an hour. That was with a fairly conservative corner exit because it was very slippery and then a very conservative braking point because the braking area at the end of the straight at the bend directly crosses the pit exit line. And Croft, I know you've spent a bit of time on track. Um, mm. White lines tend to get very, very slippery when they yes. get wet. So Stay um, away. there was a bit of care taken at the end of the straight to avoid that white line and to make sure that these unregistered cars that customers were going to drive after us uh, didn't end up sort of smudged along the wall. Oh, what did it sound like? Um, so sound has been a McLaren criticism since day one. The MP412C, I think Top Gear described as a fax machine. Um but over the life of that V8 engine, they got better at making it sound good. This Artura, I think, needs a little bit of work in the sound department. The V6 engine, just in general, is not a particularly sort of sonorous setup. Um, with the exception of some Alfa Romeo engines, there aren't all that many good-sounding V6s from over history. Um, McLaren has put some work into making it sound sort of serious inside, and it does sound like I think purposeful is probably the best word. But there are certain speeds where at constant throttle it feels a bit buzzy and it definitely needs just a little bit of refinement. Mm. With that said, I don't know that the target audience is going to worry too much about the fact that it doesn't sound like a screaming Ferrari V12 because although it doesn't do sound all that well, the hybrid system is very clever and it does some other stuff really effectively. Uh, you get about 30 k's of electric range when you're driving in the city. Um, we didn't get to test that full range out, but we did obviously put our foot down in electric mode. And as it turns out, about uh, 70 kilowatts and 200 newton meters doesn't make this supercar feel very fast in e-mode, but it will do it up to 130 k's an hour. And if you live in Europe or in parts of China where there are emissions controls on city, it means that you can drive your really expensive supercar into the place where everyone can actually see you getting out of it. So if you're a buyer who wants to be seen, that, that's worth its waiting. Can I, can I just say that I don't think McLaren have ever sounded good. Um, not, even their V8s never sounded great. They always sounded gruff. So the, per, the, the Ferrari, who is also doing a, uh, a six-cylinder hybrid, the 296 GTP, sounds insanely good. 
um, tremendously fast and all that. So I, I, it seems like McLaren still haven't come to grips with a great sounding supercar. Um, it, yeah. Yeah, look, I, I don't disagree with you, Croft. I haven't had nearly the same experience with the V8 cars as you have, but compared to that just insane flat plane crank V8 in Ferrari, uh, naturally aspirated supercars, and then even the turbo unit in the 488, they've never sounded quite as good. So hopefully that is one of the areas they can improve on. Um, when you move out of E mode and into comfort mode, the petrol engine turns on. Uh, it fires, it sounds a little bit like one of those Le Mans races that sort of bump start themselves on electric power and then kicks in. It doesn't fire quietly. It really sort of roars into life. Um, and the way that the car's tuned is quite interesting. In its most comfortable mode, it will turn off the engine below about 20 k's an hour, almost like start-stop, and then over about 65 k's an hour, it cuts back in automatically. It also uses the engine to charge the battery. There's no regenerative braking. Um, but because there's so much talk from the electric motor and of the way it's blended, the car was like in eighth gear at about 80 k's an hour very, very comfortably. And when you put your foot down, it just lean on the motor's torque. So I suppose on a bigger scale than other plug-in hybrids we've driven just because of how powerful it is, the motor and the petrol play really nice. And I could imagine on the public road, if you were just driving in traffic, you'd always be two or three gears higher than you would expect. And you'd always get decent performance from the Artura. We'll obviously need to drive it on the public road to know that. But if you are driving it to and from work or the shops, or you just want to take it to a cafe to show it off, the plug-in hybrid system is designed essentially to, to make it quite efficient and just to fill in the gaps for the turbo engine. When you put your foot down and you put it into track or to sport mode, it kind of changes a little bit. Uh, in track mode, the gearbox gets much more aggressive. It's an eight-speed dual clutch that actually doesn't have a reverse gear. It uses the electric motor. Um, and it also uses the engine to always charge the battery. So if you're on part throttle, any spare power the engine has is fed to the battery so that it always has full go. Um, a similar system applies in the new Merc C63, but essentially that means that in theory, you can do 10, 15 laps in one stint and not run out of battery and all of a sudden have no performance. Um, McLaren also spent a lot of time talking about linearity, which is a real challenge with plug-in hybrids because you get electric boost and then turbo boost and blending them all together with the car feeling natural is really hard to do. So the electric motor sort of does torque fill. It essentially fills in where the turbos are spooling up between two and 5,000 RPM. And then from there, it really tapers off as the petrol engine takes over. And the feeling you get is just one big shove in the back, like you're sort of going downhill essentially, but all the way from really low revs through the 8,500 RPM red line. Um, Albors has driven this car as well. He drove one in the UK and sort of said it doesn't feel as wild at the top end as a 720S, but it is still plenty fast. And the way that it piles on speed is kind of deceptive. You put your foot down and there's no real like lift off in the shove in the back. It just keeps accelerating and keeps accelerating uh, all the way through to that red line, at which point the engine sort of the transmission shifts, the engine cuts out for a second, obviously. The motor gives you a shove in the back to fill in that gap. And then it all kind of kicks in again. It's really, really clever. And I think the smartest thing I can say about it is, although we know all this stuff is going on because we've talked about it with McLaren and we've sort of seen technical diagrams, when you're actually driving fast, you kind of just drive and it does its thing in the background. It's really impressive. How's the feedback and, and does it – McLarens have always had um, a brilliant um, – 
a brilliant uh, way of making cars feel really like race cars um, on the track and you feel like you're actually driving a race car with so much feedback in the steering, the braking and all that. Do you get the same uh, sense of incredible, this is an incredible driver's car that you can take to the track and go nuts? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, McLaren tried to make really clear where this sits, and it's sort of between the GT and the 720S. It's a supercar you can drive on the road, but it'll still do stuff on the track. Um, That, to me, would suggest it might have gone with electric power steering that gives it lane keep and all that sort of thing. It might have gone with regen braking for one pedal driving in town. But clearly, the, uh, the team at McLaren that looks after the track driving side of things has a fair bit of sway because... You still get hydraulic power steering. You don't get an electric rack, which McLaren says just isn't ready, basically, to give the feedback they want. And there's no brake regen so that, again, this is according to McLaren, you get better feel through the pedal, and it is noticeable. Um, The steering in particular was a highlight for me. I've been reading about McLarens for a long time. I actually hadn't driven one up until the Artura, but immediately it felt really natural. Uh, The weighting was just right, and on a sort of wet, dry track, you're never quite sure where the grip is. And you could really feel through the wheel what was going on at the front axle. So when it was gripping, you knew what was going on. As you got on the throttle and the car started to push a bit, it all kind of just was chatting to you the whole time to, to let you know what was happening. And that for me was something I was really curious to explore because it's been a highlight of McLaren's previously based on what I've read. The brake pedal in each of the three cars was slightly different. One of them had recently had new pads put in after a Middle Eastern track experience. So it didn't feel quite as confidence inspiring, but between the fact that I actually could get comfortable in the car, and that's a really important thing for when you're driving quickly, um, but also that you know you, you could really feel through the pedal what was going on and bleed off as you came into the corner to get the car turning, it definitely had the, the feel and the communication I was expecting. I find it really interesting, Croft, my only experience of driving a Ferrari was actually a Roma that uh, you had up in Sydney. Um, and the steering in that, which isn't as hyperactive as some Ferrari, still really threw me off to start with because it's so quick. McLaren hasn't gone down that road and I think it's kind of a good thing. It just sort of, it immediately feels intuitive and natural, which gives you a lot of confidence on the track the first time you drive the car. Because plug-in hybrids obviously have a weight penalty over a non-plug-in hybrid and the Artura has a fairly big battery in it for a car of its type. Did you find that that came into play at all in terms of the handling and the balance of the vehicle when you were driving on track? Uh, It's interesting. 1,500 kilos is quite light for a plug-in hybrid, but very heavy for a supercar or a McLaren supercar. Um, I I didn't feel like it was a big, heavy car that was struggling to control itself on the track. Um, There's three different suspension modes. You can flick through them using a little rocker switch up above the steering wheel. Um, And in comfort on the racetrack, it just felt like a sort of loosely sprung supercar. In sport, it had a little bit of body movement, but was quite nicely controlled. And track was really quite firm and Sport was better in the wet because you could feel what was going on. Um, At no point did I think this thing feels heavy or cumbersome. Um, McLaren's done a really good job disguising the weight on the track at least. Um, And I think that's partly down to the fact that it's got a new carbon tub and new suspension set up that's designed to deal with that weight for one. But also the powertrain itself is really quite interesting. It's smaller significantly than the old powertrain. Um, and a lot of the tech in it is there to make it lighter and simpler and, and easier to, to integrate than a normal plug-in hybrid system. Um, so, yeah, look, uh, we'll need to have a real crack on the road to know for sure on bumpy roads and that sort of thing where 
the sort of big up and down movements are what catch out plug-in hybrids usually. But yeah, on the track, it still felt really light on its feet, had a really quick front end. And at no point did I go, oh, this just feels like a big lurching battery car. <laughs> what did the interior feel like at speed? Um you mentioned uh, at the start of this that I fit in the car. I know that sounds like a really small thing, but I'm six foot seven. I've got very long legs. And getting into most supercars is a nightmare. Um, I've driven a Huracan and an Aventador on track. I've driven a Mercedes AMG GT. The Merc was all right. The Huracan was really quite sketchy and the Aventador sketchier again between sort of head tilted on the roof with a helmet on, knees up around the back of the steering wheel. Getting in the McLaren, uh, getting under those doors, I actually found quite easy when you know how. Um, But also once I was in, my helmet was just gently touching the roof, but the whole steering column and instrument pod move as one and they go up nice and high and come right out to the driver. So I actually had space for my knees under the wheel. And that means that on a wet track where, you know, without meaning to, maybe you find yourself getting sideways and, you know, you need to be quick on your feet. I was really confident that my hands were in the right spot that I could actually steer the car. Um, McLaren has always made usability a focus of its cars. It's something they've talked about since the MP412C. And between the fact you can see out of it reasonably well compared to a normal supercar and the fact that there actually is space for tall people, it feels pretty well set up to meet that goal. Um, I didn't get much of a chance to play around with the tech. We had a limited time with the car on sort of three stints on track. Um, but Bors has driven the car over in the UK and spoke very highly of the new infotainment system. And the driver display is awesome. It's really clear, puts all the info you need in front of you, but it also doesn't overwhelm you like sort of some track displays can. So I think that's a tick for McLaren. And it, it really does address one of the big issues with their older cars, which was that the Iris infotainment system was a bit of a nightmare. With all of that said, um, this is a, a new car for McLaren and they have had lots of software troubles with it in the lead up to launch. Um, the car was debuted late in 2020 and then software issues plagued its launch in 2022. So I fully believe the company when they say we think we're on top of them because obviously the risk of launching an unfinished car is really significant. But it is going to be interesting to see how the first few owners go with their cars and if there are any major over-the-air updates that need to be rolled out, which... Again, the fact it takes over the air updates, it debuts a new electrical architecture for McLaren means theoretically those things are easier to fix. You've given it a Car Expert rating of nine and you can check out the car and Scully's review at carexpert.com.au now. Thank you, Scully. Thanks, guys. That wraps up this week's Car Expert podcast. Have we got another full garage coming up next week, J.O.? Yes, we do. So in Melbourne, we are um, getting a Lamborghini Huracan STO for Paul to film, which is really exciting. Uh, We're also picking up a Suzuki Swift GLX Turbo, which will be good to revisit because we haven't had one of those for a while. Um, We're picking up a Ford Escape ST line plug-in hybrid, which is an endangered species as of this week. Um, We'll be driving the Mahindra Scorpio N in Melbourne, as well as a couple of Mini Countrymans, a Peugeot 308 GT Sport hatch plug-in hybrid and a Kia Seltos Sport. Um, And in Sydney, we have the team uh, in a Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid as well as uh, Great Wall Motors or GWM Havel H6 GT Ultra all-wheel drive. (laughs) J-Lo, I'm really concerned that that STO is beyond Paul's drivable capabilities. I'm 
I'm, uh, I'm well, very I'm concerned. sure you can take that up with him. <laughs> <laughs> and um, whereabouts is the team off to? We've actually got a fairly busy week, um, but I will be in Canberra next week on the Cooper Bourne launch. So we're actually driving production spec vehicles on public mm. roads and we're not just driving it around so a, a small racetrack, which is really, awesome. which is really exciting. Um, and it's my first Cooper event too. So I'm keen to meet some of the team there and so um, hopefully brush up on my Catalan. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Be jealous. I'm going to be posting all about it, oh. Um And Jade's actually going to be getting on a an Isuzu Adventure Club um, getaway wow. event uh, with the team in um, the Victorian High Country, which would be a really cool thing for her to do. Some off roading, see some you know scenery that because she's obviously from Sydney, so she has probably hasn't spent a lot of exploring time in Melbourne just mm-hmm. yet or Victoria. So I think it'll be a great thing for her to do. Um, and we have some stuff coming up the week after as well. We have um, Volkswagen Amarok launch coming up and the Mercedes Benz EQE. Mm. Oh, awesome Excellent. stuff. Well, as always, if you would like to get in touch with this podcast at carexpert.com.au and if you haven't already, please do give us a rating on whatever podcast platform you use. Tony Crawford and James Wong, thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.